0: It was in 1973 that Dr. Carl Menninger, who at that time was a very prominent leader in the arena of modern psychiatry, wrote a book that stunned the world of psychiatry and counseling. The book was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? That was the, that was the title of the book, Whatever Became of Sin? And while he was not a believer in the teachings of the Bible, he made a very penetrating observation This is what he said. The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle, but the word went away. It has almost disappeared, the word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? This is a question he asked in 1973, and the whole burden of his book was to document the disappearance of the concept of sin from American culture and society. He basically argued that in place of the historic concept of sin, we now speak of crime and symptoms and addictions and dysfunctions, but we avoid the word sin as much as we can. And as Dr. Menninger points out, when you discard the concept of sin and replace it with concepts of symptoms, you uh, you define it as something that's completely exterior or outside of us. And his book offered page after page of proof that the concept of sin has become lost in American society. Now, I can understand that the world does not want to talk about sin. I can understand that. It's just not a popular concept that most feel it only heaps guilt on people to talk about sin. But how do we explain the hesitancy of preachers to talk about sin? Back in the mid-1980s, a book entitled Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, was mailed unsolicited and free of charge to thousands of pastors across the country. I well remember, I vividly remember, receiving that book in the mail. I hadn't asked for it, but it came. And it was authored by a well-known TV preacher who did not like to talk about sin. He was more concerned about people's self-esteem. In his book, he made this statement, quote, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Did you get that? This is what he actually wrote. He said it's crude, uncouth, and unchristian to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Well-known preacher, many years on television, and there are many who do not want to, who try to avoid the word sin, and unfortunately, in many churches, it's rarely mentioned. As one writer put it this way: "Suddenly, ugly old sins got a facelift, put on new clothes, and proudly came to church." Fornication and adultery, sins that would have gotten a person stoned to death in ancient Israel, appeared in church as, quote, meaningful relationships. Homosexuality, a sin that got the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah burned to ashes by a very angry God, came to church as alternate lifestyles. And even ugly old greed got dialed up and came to church as the prosperity gospel. And so it is that a biblical understanding of sin for the most part, has disappeared from our society, society, from the church, and sometimes even from our consciences. Today, for many people, the solution to what used to be called sin is now called self-help programs, positive thinking, therapy, meditation, etc. And uh, let me say, I, I believe in counseling, but I believe in biblical counseling that uses the Bible and talks about sin. Most counselors you would go to, non-Christian, would not talk about sin. I'll guarantee you that. Not in their vocabulary. It is sometimes amazing to see the lighthearted view that many Christians have of the issue of sin. Harold Burchett, who wrote a book called Spiritual Life Studies that many of you are familiar with, makes this point in his book, quote, "...it is essential that careless believers take a more serious view of their sin for their own good and for the good of the family of God with whom they live. No doubt we all need a more serious view of sin." You know, if you do away with the concept of sin, then you also do do away with the need for what? You don't need a savior, right? Who needs a savior? If there's no sin, there's really really no need for a savior. And the fact is that according to the Bible, the gospel is good news about God's solution to man's sin problem. (laughs) The Apostle Paul says... The gospel that I preach is that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He says that's the gospel. But who needs a gospel if we're not sinners? The fact is how we view sin will deeply affect how we view and appreciate and appropriate the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to just point out that the Bible uses the word sin in primarily three different ways. And sometimes people get confused because they don't distinguish these uses. Very quickly, the Bible speaks of sin, first of all, as legal guilt or condemnation. In other words, apart from Christ, we are all counted as legally guilty in God's sight. Romans 3, 9, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. We are all under sin. Uh, Galatians 3.22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. We are all under the condemnation. We're all born under the legal guilt of sin, the Bible says, every single one of us. But secondly, the Bible speaks of sin as an inner corruption, an inner defilement inside of us. There's something. For instance, Romans 7.17 says, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but it is sin that dwells in me. Paul said, there's something inside of me. That's sin. That's that inner corruption. And the third way it's, it speaks of it, it speaks of it as wrong actions. And now that's probably what we think of most of the time when we use the word sin. Wrong actions, sinful actions in, in word, thought, or deed. That's Sins of omission, the Bible says, if whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. James four seventeen. Sins of commission, First uh, John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So those are actions of sin. Now, I believe that the Lord's Supper serves as a threefold reminder that Christ died to deliver us from all three aspects of sin, from the legal guilt of sin, from our inner defilement, and from the acts of sin that come out of us. And I want to briefly consider this morning this threefold reminder of how our Savior deals with our sin in all its manifestations. And I believe when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord wants us to look in three directions every time we observe the Lord's Supper. There's a, Lord, there's a look backward, and there's a reminder there of the past. There's to be a look inward and a reminder of the present, and there's to be a look forward and a reminder of the future. All three of these are found in the key text that deals with the Lord's Supper. And I ask you to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, One of the, if you're using one of the Bibles that uh, you find provided there, it's 1,000. Page 1,366. I'd like you to have that passage in front of you. First of all, beginning of verse 23. First of all, we have a reminder of the past that Christ has set us free from the penalty of sin. There's a reminder there. Look at verse 23. I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus in the night he which he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, we look backward to remember what the the lord Jesus did for us on the cross of calvary the lord 's Supper is a memorial to the past, a reminder of the cross and the centrality of its message that by his death on the cross Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin romans three hundred twenty three reminds us that the wages of sin is what death The wages of sin is death. it is physical death, it is spiritual death, it is eternal death. The Bible says. And God made that principle abundantly clear at the very beginning of creation when he told the first human being, Adam, that in the day you disobey me, and that is what? To disobey God is sin. You will surely die. That was what he told Adam. And since that day, whenever whenever sin has been committed, the penalty of, of death must be paid. That is an irrevocable law that God laid down. He demonstrated this when he took the lives of some animals to provide garments of skin for Adam and his wife. Some animals died for that to happen. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, listen, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Bible says. the, The blood has to be shed. Someone has to die. A life must be given for sin, it says. And so beginning there and continuing throughout the centuries of Old Testament history, you know that animals had to be sacrificed again and again and again, and their blood was shed as a covering for man's sin. But you know, the Bible tells us that all those animals slaughtered down through the centuries provided a covering for sin but could not cleanse it away. Provided a covering. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It covered the sin, it tells us. But then one day, as Jesus came walking toward the Jordan River, the people heard John the Baptist point to him and say, behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb. That's going to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus Christ, as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, died to take away our sins and the penalty for those sins. When he hung there in agony, he was not dying for his sins. He had none. He was dying for your sins and my sins. In other words, his death was a substitutionary death. He died your death and my death, the Bible tells us, because the wages of sin is death. And we were we were doomed to die because of our sin. But Christ paid the penalty to set us free. This is the way Isaiah, the prophet, put it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, which is to say we are what sinners. That's what it's saying. But then he says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I sometimes like to picture what happened this way. Let's suppose this book contained all the sins that I have ever committed. It would have to be in microscopic font to get them all in here. But let's suppose this book contained all the sins. And, of course, the Bible says that there is a record of our sins but if all the sins I committed were in this book, you see, the problem I have, here's a holy God, and no matter how good I try to be, all the good works I do, I go to church, I get baptized, I do a lot of things. The problem is I have, here's a holy God, and I've got all this sin that's waiting me down and separating. We, we like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But then the Bible says, Isaiah says, but the Lord laid on him. The iniquity of us all. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, all my sins, all your sins were put on him. He bore those sins on the tree. That's why Peter says that uh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. We sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow is what the song says. And Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They are, though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what happened on the cross. So anyone who will put their faith and trust in what he did on the cross can be set free from the penalty of sin, eternal death, and receive the gift of eternal life. Romans 3.23, that verse has an important word in it. It's the word but. The wages of sin is death, but. Big, important word. The free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, the gift is free for you, but the gift costs an infinite price, an infinite price. It costs the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And my friend, I ask you this morning, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and been set free from the penalty of sin? At the moment we place our faith in Christ and His work on the cross, God declares us not guilty, not guilty. And each time we come to the Lord's Supper, I believe we're reminded afresh of the fact that because of Christ's death, we have been set free from the penalty of sin and now have been declared righteous in God's sight. The theological term we use for this is justification. We have been justified just as if we never sinned. Romans eight one says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. So every time we come to the Lord's uh, Supper, it says we eat this bread and drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death. We are remembering his death for us and what he did on the cross. But then there is a reminder of the present when we come to the Lord's table. We are reminded that Christ is, is setting us free from the power of sin in our lives. Look at this verse 27 and 29 there in 1 Corinthians 11. Look what it says about this issue. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Let a man examine himself. Each time we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that sin should not have dominion over us, that Christ wants to free us from the power of sin in our lives, from that inner defilement our sinful nature that we still have, even after we are saved. It has not been eradicated, in case you didn't know. I don't think I need to tell you that. Have you had? Have you felt any pull towards sins, sin since you came to Christ and were freed from the penalty of sin? Have you felt any pulls towards sin in your life? Indeed, we all have and we all will. Because this sinful nature can still produce sinful actions. But listen, in the time between being set free from the penalty of sin and going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future, we are to live in victory over the power of sin. In other words, the Lord's table is intended to keep us from living in known, deliberate, repeated sin. It is to be a time of self-evaluation as to how am I doing in the area of victory over the power of sin that Jesus wants to give me. Now, let's be clear. In this life, we will never reach a point where we are sinless. Some teach sinless perfection, which is heresy. But we will never reach a point where we are sinless. But listen, the longer we know the Lord, the less and less we should sin. We are to be growing in our walk with the Lord. For instance, I sometimes say, you know, I never had when my kids were learning to walk, um, they would fall down quite a bit. I don't know if your kids did that, but they fall down quite often. But they kept getting up, kept getting up, and as time went along, they get, they f- would fall less and less and less, and finally came the day where they doing, they walk pretty good today. But you know what? They still have the ability, can they still fall? Sure, they can still fall, but it's a rare occasion. Listen, if they had continued to fall and fall and fall, it would have been indicative there was some serious issue there. And I, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I have the potential to fall But it should be less and less and less as I walk with the Lord. If I am falling all the time, it's indicative that there is a serious issue that I need to deal with. And so um, it's inconceivable and unacceptable that a person who has been set free from the penalty of sin by faith in Christ, would continue to be dominated by the power of sin in their daily living. And that was the Apostle Paul's great concern in Romans chapter 6. I'd ask you to turn there in your Bible uh, for a few minutes. A key passage on this issue of victory over sin, and we can't do justice to it this morning, but I want you to see the basic issue. Romans chapter 6, that's page 1344. Look what he says here about victory over sin. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Okay, now that Christ is freed us from the penalty of sin, does that mean we can sin all the more so we know more of God's grace? And his answer is what? Verse 2, may it never be. Some versions say by no means should we continue in sin. Because... The Lord has died to give us victory over sin. Well, you see, how do I get the power uh, of sin? Uh, how do I get victory over the power of sin in my life? Well, this chapter goes into it in great detail. But I want you to look at the key verse, verse 6, key verse on this issue, verse 6. Notice what he says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Well, he uses sin several times in that verse, and we need to be clear on the distinction that he is making. This one verse refers to all three aspects of sin that I referred to. Notice carefully the flow of the verse. He says, knowing this, our old self was crucified with him. Well, what does that mean? Our old self was crucified. You notice back in verse two, he says, how shall we who died to sin? We died to sin. We were crucified with Christ. Well, when did that happen? Well, that death was a historic event once and for all when Jesus died in history. And it says we were united to him. Uh, Our death happened in God's way of seeing things on the day Christ died. When he died, we died. Is what it's saying. In fact, verse verse 5, notice verse 5 of this chapter. We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. We will also be united in the likeness of his resurrection. When he died, the Bible says we were there and we died. When we put our faith and trust in him, that is now applied to us by faith. And at the moment you and I put our faith in Christ and his death on the cross for us, at that moment, God sees us as having died and he declares us not guilty. We, the payment was made for our sin. We are identified with Christ and His death. Colossians 3.3 3 puts it this way. You have died. <laughs> you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in, in God. So, uh, we died. Uh, positionally with Christ it's saying and we're set free in fact do you know that our baptism that's what it pictures look what he says here in verses 3 and 4 don't you know that if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus you've been baptized into his death been buried with him through baptism in death in order that as christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father we might walk in newness of life we in baptism picture that we are buried with him we die with him bury with him and we are risen to newness of life we are picturing what happened at the moment we put our faith in jesus christ one writer put it this way we believers died by proxy in jesus christ and god counts us as having been executed for our sin that's what happened at calvary so god can declare us not guilty On February 15th, 1959, as I prayed to trust Christ as my Savior after having gone to church and been active in the youth group and not knowing the Lord, at that moment in time, I was declared not guilty. And the death of Christ for me was applied to me at that moment. But notice in verse six, that's not the end of it there. He says that old self was crucified with him so that that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, this is uh, unfortunate. The NASB doesn't do a good job on translating this verse. Might be done away with is not a good rendering. The ESV says might be brought to nothing and the New Living Translation says, might lose its power in our lives. That's what it's saying. It's not done away with, but it might lose its power in our lives. And when it says, notice the body of sin, not referring to our physical body. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There's nothing inherently evil in our physical body. It is referring to our sinful nature. It is our sinful nature within us. Uh, That is to lose its power to dominate our lives. That's what he's saying. We were freed from the guilt of sin so that the present uh, power of sin might be defeated in our lives. Listen, Christ died not only to release us from the penalty of sin, but Christ wants to give us relief from the dominating power of sin in our life. And then notice the next part of that verse. He says that we should no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, our lives should not be characterized by sinful thoughts, sinful words, sinful actions. So you get the flow of that. We're forgiven. Our guilt is we're, we're freed from the guilt of sin so that we would have victory over the power of sin. So there would not produce sinful actions. <laughs> He repeats this kind of verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let it reign. We are not to let sin. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. You get the point? We are not to live as believers under the dominion of sin. We are no longer guilty before God. And notice what he says in verse 14. You're not under law, but we're under grace. Whereas we were guilty... God could not pour out his grace on us. That is the desire and the power to do his will, his sustaining grace. But now if we are free from condemnation. He says we are under grace. So God can pour out his grace in our lives. And listen, he gives us the means of grace that we need to use. I don't have time to go into all of it, but let me just mention the filling of the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of God, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Prayer. Prayer. Uh, fellowship with other believers. These are all means of grace that God has given to us to help us walk in victory. So when we come to the Lord's table, he tells us, examine yourself. We need to take stock of our lives as believers before we come, because he says we can eat in an unworthy manner. That is, if we partake of the Lord's supper and have known unconfessed sin in our lives that the Holy Spirit puts his fingers on. So we need, we need to be reminded afresh that God wants us to be increasingly set free from the tyranny of sin in our lives, sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful attitudes. And we call this sanctification. That is the process of becoming like Christ. We should become like Christ. My friend, we are in a daily battle. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know that I'm in a daily battle with a sinful nature that's still here. That will not fully end that battle until we are with Christ. It won't end till then. But notice that brings us to the reminder of the future that is here in the Lord's Supper. And listen, the reminder is this, that someday Christ will set us free from the very presence of sin. No more sin, no more sinful pull. Look at verse 26 of of 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, you eat this bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do this at, until he comes. We are looking forward to, to, to that day uh, when he comes, until the glorious moment when faith becomes sight, and we see him face to face, and we are set free from the very presence of sin in our lives. Listen, the Apostle John puts it this way, speaking of that future day. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. For we know that when he appears, we shall be like him totally free from the presence of sin and completely conformed to his image because we will see him as he is. We call this our glorification. We will be glorified and be like Christ. And then he says this in First John, and all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure. They'll keep themselves pure, even as he is pure. That's a motivation to keep ourselves pure, he says. You see, the Lord's Supper is an occasion to examine my life to see if I am living a pure life before the Lord. We are to meet at the Lord's table until he comes, until the day when there will be no more sin, no more regret, no more sorrow, no more struggle. Paul puts it this way when he writes to Titus. He said, we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. We are to be looking for it. We are to be looking for it in our lives This could be the last time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every time we come to the Lord's table, I am reminded this could be the last time. Sometime is going to be the last time. This could be the last time. The hope of the church is that any moment, any day, the clouds will part and Jesus, our Savior, will come to set us free from the presence of sin. Listen, in Romans 8, it says we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised to give us, our glorified bodies, free from that inner pull of sin, free from the acts of sin. Yes, I believe the Lord's Supper is a threefold reminder every time we come. First of all, it's a reminder that Christ died to set us free from the penalty of sin. Secondly, it's a reminder that we are to examine ourselves and make sure we are walking in freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And it is a reminder to look forward to the day with anticipation when Christ will set us free from the very presence of sin. A threefold reminder of the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare our hearts and minds to come, I'm going to ask we just all bow our, our hearts and our heads in a few minutes of, of prayer. I would ask you just all heads be bowed as we do what the Scripture says. It says we are to examine ourselves, and we must take seriously what the Scripture says. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I would encourage you to examine your heart before the Lord and ask these questions. Has there been a time in your life when you were set free from the legal guilt of sin? Can you say, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul this morning, my friend? Has there been a time in your life when you repented of your sin and turned and put your faith in Christ and heard God declare you not guilty, not guilty? If you've never done that, my friend, why not do it just right now in your own heart before the Lord? You can confess to him that you know that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, but that Jesus died on the cross, bearing your sins in his body there, and that you want to trust him as your Lord and as your Savior. Why not do that right now? For those who would say, yes, I have put my faith and trust in Christ, are you living in freedom from the tyranny of the power of sin? Or is there sin in your life that the Holy Spirit is pointing out that needs to be confessed and forsaken? The Bible says, I'm writing these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And maybe you need to confess that sin to the Lord this morning and ask his cleansing so that you can walk on in the power of the holy spirit let's examine our hearts before the lord this morning